It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 10th of January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. Hard as it is to believe, it was June 2016 when the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. We're still talking about it, but now it seems there is finally some hope on the horizon. A joint statement on behalf of the European Union and the British government said yesterday that there is a new basis for protocol negotiations because of an agreement that was reached between the two sides on sharing trade data. Furthermore, talks between the Taunashta, Michal Martin and political leaders in the North on the protocol and restoring Stormont are being described as productive. The latest deadline for calling elections in the North is the 19th of January, so time really is of the essence. Michal Martin is in Brussels today where he'll meet with the EU's chief negotiator for Following a very successful meeting, it would seem by all accounts, yesterday between Maris Sefcovic and the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, as well as the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris. Let's begin now by speaking with Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. How optimistic would you be? Well, I think it's certainly a, a big step towards one of the big uh, stumbling blocks, if you like, this whole issue of whether you have a, a, a hard border in Ireland or a border in the, in the Irish Sea. I think this, is, this allows the possibility, if you like, of almost a virtual border, if you like, where the goods can be... This allows the, the information from the UK database to be shared with Europe, so Europe then can, can confirm, if you like, whether or not goods are, are leaking into the EU or not. So I think it does... It does create a situation where one of the big issues, which is whether we have a hard border on the island of Ireland or whether, as the unions would see it, a border between the Northern Ireland and the UK, mm. that can be, if you like, averted by using data to prove what's happening. And I suppose if you look at it, the UK, we're talking about red and green lanes. The, the EU are talking about express lanes. Essentially, it's different versions of the same thing. But if you have the data, you can determine where, where the goods are going. So you don't need to do the physical checks, in other words. 
You don't have to do a, well, the EU had already talked about minimal levels of physical checks, mm. but I suppose this gives the reassurance as to what uh, what goods are travelling into the south and what aren't, and then that they, they, if you like, the customs can follow in suit with that. You don't have to have physical, phys- as you say, you don't have to have physical checks either on the border in Ireland or in the coming across the Irish Sea. But it will be policed by the European Union. Yes, well, they, 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 as I say, it's one of the steps. Like, one mm. of the other big issues, the European Court of Justice, for instance, it was a key part of of any, let's say, if there was issues to be resolved, that the, the European Court of Justice was a player in that. Now, that's a concern for the UK still. So there are other issues that still have to be addressed. But I suppose, uh, given that, the, the, if you like, the hard border is very much what's front and central, it's very much what's front and central as regards the Good Friday Agreement and issues like that, this gives a, gives a basis on which, I suppose, as to say, renewed optimism where they, an agreement could be found. Mm. It's not a solution in itself, but any step forward, you, you have to grab it with both hands and use it as an impetus to try and drive things forward. Yeah. Does it follow, though, that the DUP will agree to an agreement that has been made by the Conservative Party? I wouldn't necessarily say so. I think the, the DUP are still holding their position as regards uh, what they've, they've said already. But I think, look, uh, there, there would be a possibility of that. But I think certainly, even the rest of the language that there has mm. been in the last week or two, I think the Taoiseach's comments in relation to the, the protocol that maybe there was mistakes made, the fact that uh, uh, I think he's visiting the north, north of Ireland uh, during the week as is the Labour leader in the UK. So, like... There are moves on. I suppose what you're really trying to do here is is to to, to uh, soften positions, to recognise different positions, to, to 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 bridge gaps, if you like. And I don't expect any anyone from the the DUP or the unionist uh, community to to automatically kind of. Uh, buy into this but it certainly should be the impetus where if we can avoid a hard border in the Irish Sea is what, what mm. they are seeking if we can avoid a hard border in the island of Ireland which I think is what everyone is seeking uh, then surely that's a big big step towards uh, where we're going but there's still still many other steps like the like it's the European Court of Justice, obviously. Mm, mm. They're, they're separate right. issues, but when it, it comes to goods coming into the country, it may be uh, enough, it looks most likely that it will be enough uh, to uh, appease uh, the British government or give it a get-out-of-jail card, if you prefer, depending on which way you want to put it. Uh, but I'm not so sure that it, it will be enough to bring the unionists over the line, uh, because it's a matter of principle, and, and if... Uh, the flow of goods uh, is going to be policed by the European Union as a, a matter of principle. I, I think the same principle stands uh, that that is different to the way the rest of the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. I think certainly you can't uh, presume anything or you, you have to recognise different people's positions within it. I, as you say, I think it certainly gives the UK government a position to 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 move, if you like. But I think you still have to recognise that it's it's not a solution in itself, and that the unionist community have to be brought on board with this, and uh, in terms of any solution, and they, they, their their sensitivities have to be appreciated, and that's why I suppose if you're in a position where you felt that was the case, then you'd be, you'd be confident you had an agreement to now. But I don't think we have an agreement yet. There's still there's still a road to go on this. Mm. And, uh, I think certainly the last thing we can afford to do is not respect 
their position because if we don't respect their position I think you'll just end up back to square one. Okay and what do we do if we get to the end of these talks and there is an agreement between the two sides uh, because the two sides in this are the British government and the European Union so if the two sides uh, agree uh, but then you've got uh, problems with the DUP uh, who uh, can't accept the agreement who will feel that the Conservatives have sold them out again uh, what then? Uh, because the Good Friday Agreement uh, hinges on uh, the institutions, doesn't it, on uh, the Assembly and an executive being formed? Yes, and I think the, the, one of the crunch points about all this is the need for further elections in the North and the need to create an Assembly. And But I think within that whole scenario of further elections in the North, like uh, the DUP and, and the whole... Uh, like. There is moving sands in the north as well in terms of, I think people want a solution and within their own ranks, the DUP may find people who, who want things to move on. Mm. Sometimes where the political voices are might might be somewhat out of sync with where the, the public opinion on the ground is and certainly from speaking to people on the ground or from speaking to industry in general in the north, one way or the other, they want certainty. in the Well, world. the opinion polls would indicate that the DUP are representing their constituency. Well, within, with, to a degree, and look, mm. I'm not, it's far from me to, to lecture or indicate anything to, to the DUP, but I do think, like, it is about collectively looking for a situation where, to, to recognising that a, a soft, a, if you like, or a virtual border isn't impacting on the UK's, it, the Northern Ireland's ability to trade with the UK. It won't be impacting it at all, essentially. Mm. It'll just be, and it, the, the data sharing will, will be able to vindicate or verify that. But it's Northern Ireland's constitutional position in the UK that is of importance. That's the matter of principle, isn't it? But it, but it, it certainly is. But at the same time, in what way is the Northern Ireland's position in the UK being, being damaged as part of this? And I suppose that... Because Northern that, Ireland is like, being policed by the European Union. Well, no, no, it's not that it's been policed by the European Union necessarily. I think uh, the European Union will have will have oversight in terms of what what uh, goods are going where, and mm. if there's goods going into the into the south of Ireland, then clearly that's an issue for the European Union. But what goods go in and out, they'll only have sight of it. They won't be policing it. And they, like there may be an issue where a dispute arises. Well, they will be having. They will be policing it, won't it? I mean, that's the idea of giving them sight uh, of it, so that you don't need to do the physical checks. Uh, but you're doing this virtual check, as you put it, uh, which comes down. When it comes down to it, it is policing well, it's, it. It's oversight. It's yeah, oversight exactly, as opposed yeah. to policing. Yeah, and, they, uh, and like, and it's not. It's the not the same kind of oversight that will uh, exist in Liverpool or uh, in London, for that matter. Well, it's it's but it's it will it's access to data that data mm. that's, that's travelling in and out. There's no doubt about that. But but it's it is oversight. It's not it's not as if they're going to say stop. Like if they were policing it, they'd be in a position to stop a goods coming in and out of Northern Ireland. That won't be the case. They'll just be able to see what's happening, and then in uh, and by virtue of if if goods then arrive into the Republic of Ireland as a result of that, then that's, that's action in relation to goods coming into the Republic. That's policing the, the border on the, on the island of Ireland virtually, if you like. Hmm. It is not, it is not a, if you like, a police force on the ground stopping goods, a, if you know what I mean, when you say policing in that form. They, hmm, but it is policing the border uh, west-east, is it not? Well, it's, no, it's only it, it, it's it's sharing data so you can see what's happening. Mm. 
I think if that data shows something, uh, the, the EU won't be in a position to say stop in relation to that, the, the, those goods going east and west across the, the, the Irish Sea. So it is not policing. What it is doing is it's indicating if that's causing a problem with the border between the North of Ireland and the South of Ireland, uh, or UK goods going into the South of Ireland, should I say. Okay. Uh, not North and South, but UK goods going into Okay, and, that, that, and that, that's, that's the argument. But what if that argument can't be sold to the DUP? Well, that, that's the reality of it is that uh, each of these, like what you have to do is try and uh, make things as straightforward as possible. And if mm. look, the, the reality is it may not be saleable to the DUP, but I think it, uh, the one thing... So should there be fresh elections then on the 19th of January or called on the 19th of January and that we I would be celebrating 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement without... Uh, an assembly without an executive and possibly uh, in a very bitter election campaign? I think what really is called for at this stage is probably another another extension beyond the, the 19th of January with a view to put a, uh, if you like, a, a, a more comprehensive arrangement in place with a view to being able to at least signpost to have elections coming for the for the uh, the, the Good Friday anniversary. Can, can can Stormont be restored by the tenth of April? I don't think you could. I don't think it's realistic to look at it being restored by the tenth of April. But certainly, if you have a, a direction of travel, and it does not to say you can't. You could you could do something very quickly. Mm. But I think perhaps it'd be more realistic to look at a further extension. But before be ha, lo, seek to have, if you like, a route uh, uh, elections in the offing, if you like, before before the, mm. the anniversary. But, I think but that's that, important. That, I think I think there's two. There's a couple of dates. Like let's say this 19th of January date, yeah. which is a deadline, which has to, that has to be used to focus minds. And like that, the, the the 10th of April has to be used to focus minds as well in terms of where we're going. Okay. And I think that can be used. But but I do think, look... But if there's no government in Northern Ireland come the 10th of April or no prospect of forming a government uh, come the 10th of April, these talks on the protocol can only be viewed as having been a failure. I would say if there's no basis to a, a forming a, an assembly in the north a, by the 10th of April. I think at this point in time to suggest that if you don't have an assembly up and running by the 10th of April, it's failure. I think that's not realistic. I think what we need to do is use the date of the 19th of mm. January and indeed the, the, uh, for the date of the 10th of April to see, see a way forward and put a, put a, a structure in place that provides for for if you like, elections in the North and the re-establishment of the Assembly. Mm. I think that's... But 25 years ago, the idea was that people would come together and uh, there'd be self-determination through governance uh, 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 in Northern Ireland by parties uh, that uh, came together from both sides of the divide in Northern Ireland. 25 years on, uh, if uh, the basis for the agreement... uh, the jewel in the crown, if you like, which is Stormont, uh, isn't in existence. Uh, it's going to be a, a pretty poor reflection on the 25 years that have gone before it. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's going to be anything great in the way of celebration. I wouldn't be expecting the American president to visit on the 10th of April, in other words. Well, what I would say to you is if there was the basis for an election which would go with it, form an assembly 
that surely is a step along the way. But look, who says that we can't do something in the meantime? Mm. But I, I just don't. Th- I, I'd be very concerned if it was if it was to create a cliff edge on the on the on the tenth of April too. That if like, but ultimately, if there's not an assembly in place by then, that like the, 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 the system is broken. I don't think that's that's a good position to get ourselves into because that that could only that would make things significantly worse, I think, and it would also rank up tension in the in the whole thing. So I think we have to be be realistic about what's achievable, and we have to try and achieve that in a, in a moderate time frame. But certainly, we have to use the two deadlines that are coming, be it, be it the one in January, the nineteenth of January, or be it the one in April, to focus minds. I think this opportunity, this scenario of this sharing of the data does allow for what was a major, major issue, which was a, a border down the Irish Sea and a, or a border on the island of Ireland. It allows the potential for that to be taken off the pitch. If that can be taken off the pitch, let's see where moods stand then and let's see what, what has to be addressed at that stage. Okay. Because I think you have to take it one step at a time. And if you could take that, which was the probably the most central debate of the whole thing, if you could take that off the pitch by virtue of of a a virtual oversight scenario, a, I think that that surely is something we have to grasp and see where we can take it. Well, it's certainly a step in the right direction, and uh, not too often can we talk about positive steps in relation uh, to these talks and we'll all be hoping for a positive outcome uh, and uh, hope uh, that uh, the course of uh, the next 10 days or so will focus minds. Colin Markey, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Colin Markey is a Fine Gael MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. The number of personal injury claims taken to the High Court has dropped and dropped dramatically at that, as has the scale of the awards that have been granted through the High Court. We know this because Peter Boland of the Alliance for Insurance Reform asked for this information and he's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Peter. Thank you indeed. I'm reading in the Irish Times about some of the information that was given to you by the court service chief executive and I, I think it's true to say it is pretty dramatic uh, the drop in the number of claims going through the high court it is good morning michael and i'll i'll give you a little bit of context to explain why these numbers are so important so at the heart of the personal injury system is uh, the people who are injured due to the ne- the negligence of others and they must be compensated and they must be compensated fairly and that has now been put to right uh, through the introduction of PIAB, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board back in 2014 and the uh, implementation of the judicial guidelines last year. But the, the one real issue which still causes problems is that from a, a lawyer's point of view, there's no money to be made out of a process which involves PIAB. Uh, so the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the real pay dirt comes in when you can manage to get a case to the high court because that's where the serious legal fees uh, and all the other costs accrue. Mm. Um, and so what we're seeing now uh, is that uh, the number of personal injury cases initiated in the High Court has dropped from 666 per month back in 2019 uh, to 223 uh, for the first three quarters of 
2022. Yeah. That's a 66% reduction mm. Two in the number less. of cases. It's massive. Yeah. Absolutely massive. Mm. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, and needless to say, the terms and conditions apply to that because the legal profession are doing their absolute best to undo those reforms. Uh, and we're waiting for appeals both in the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal later this year uh, on that. But the fact of the matter is uh, that the number of high court cases is down very dramatically. Uh, we know the total number of claims is down and we know, as you referenced already, because Payab have told us already, uh, that the average uh, settlement is down. So all of those are real and genuine savings and they have to be going somewhere. Uh, and they're not going to liability policy holders. Now, as we've talked about before, uh, motor premiums, fair enough, are coming down. Uh, but the premiums paid by volunteering community groups, sports clubs, cultural organisations, charities, uh, small businesses, they're actually going up. They're still tracking at plus 14% uh, on renewal. Uh, and so... The benefit of all of these reforms is not absolutely not going to policyholders. It is, and the only other place it can be going to is to insurers. Right, uh, and more people are accepting what they're offered through PIAB, uh, which means they're not going to the high court. Uh, that's gone to forty-eight percent, uh, up from thirty-six percent, uh, and there's. Also been a huge drop, as you say, in what's being paid out on average. That's dropped thirty-eight percent. Yeah, so essentially at this stage the government has been taken for a ride because between the government and the judiciary they have put a series of reforms in place which the insurance industry looks for for years. Uh, now there's still some to be addressed in terms of duty of care but in fairness to government and the opposition and the judiciary they've done everything that was asked of them uh, and yet the premiums continue to increase and uh, you know they, they, there are only so many excuses that can be deployed so first of all it was the cost of claims then it was the level of fraud cost of claims has been addressed uh, level of fraud has been thoroughly discredited uh, with the establishment of the new Garda Insurance Fraud Coordination Office uh, now they've moved on to things like duty of care and the need to further reform PIAB but the reality of it is that the costs accruing have dropped dramatically and they're being pocketed uh, so as I say government have been taken for a ride on this, but they can do something about it. Um, they have to get serious with the incumbents, the insurers that are there right now, uh, and make sure that they pass on the benefits. And ultimately, like we've seen what competition will do on the motor insurance side of things, uh, they need to make sure that we get additional competition into this market. And uh, as I think I said to you before, mm. I wouldn't have fancied that job three years ago because Ireland was a basket case when it came to insurance. But things have improved dramatically with all the new reforms uh, and it's now up to government to go out and sell that uh, to the global insurers and get additional competition in. Okay, so if just uh, if you take the amount of claims going through the High Court in isolation and look at that and say that that's dropped uh, by two-thirds, uh, there's obviously savings. If they're not going to policyholders, I take it that the money that's being saved is going into the profits and adding to the profits of the insurance companies. That's the only place it can be going, Michael, absolutely. Right. Uh, and that's allowed, is it? 
Yeah, well, the government's are killed telling us that they can't uh, directly control the price of insurance. And fair enough, given uh, current legislation, uh, both at Irish and EU level, they can't. Um, but they have enormous self-power because the insurers need them more than they need the insurers. Ireland is rapidly becoming a very profitable market uh, for insurers and that's only uh, with the cooperation of government on so many different levels in terms of the legislation and regulations that they put in place. But they're not using that Mm. uh, and they're not strong-arming the insurers and insurers will do what insurers are supposed to do. Their job is to make as much profit as they possibly can for their shareholders Uh, and that's precisely what's happening at the moment. But they're licensed to provide insurance insurance of course as well and that is the other side of it because you represent many people who can't get insurance or would argue at least that it really is unaffordable. Absolutely and so uh, you know that perfect scenario from an insurer's point of view is causing immeasurable damage to Irish society and we continue to see uh, small businesses going out of business or using their life savings uh, to pay for uh, insurance on top of the huge energy bills they've had to pay over the last few months Uh, and in the voluntary community sector we don't see um, voluntary community organisations closed down because obviously they're coming from a different place but what we do see them do is having to go out and fundraise just to pay the insurance bill uh, and winding down or not taking on the sort of activities that they were set up to do. So this is having uh, an immense impact right across uh, the fabric of Irish society uh, and it cannot be allowed to continue. Um, in, in a lot of ways, there are clearly many crises facing the, government, cur- the current government mm. um, and I don't need to list them to you. Um, this is a crisis, but it's probably the one that's easiest solved because so much has been done on it. It's the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, um, but it's up to government to get get us that last mile or so uh, and get the reforms uh, that haven't been completed, completed and make sure that the insurers honour the commitments that they've made all the way along in terms of delivering reductions Uh, because we want this crisis off the agenda uh, and we want to be able to move on to to dealing with other issues. Peter, thanks very much as always for joining us on uh, the programme today. Peter Boland is uh, the Director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Michael Reed on LMFM. The government is looking for ideas on how to deliver housing quicker and has invited a a number of groups uh, to government buildings today to meet with the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and indeed the Minister for Housing Dara O'Brien. Builders, developers, academics and people who work with the homeless will attend and share ideas with the government on how perhaps uh, they can bring about a solution which has been a crisis for more than a decade in this country and is now at its worst point with a record number of people in emergency accommodation 11,542 as recorded on Friday. Let's speak to Keno Callaghan who's a spokesperson on housing for the Social Democrats and a very good morning to you Keane, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This meeting in government buildings today comes ahead of a recommendation that 
that's expected to come from the Commission on Housing, which will be for a referendum on housing. Uh, if there was uh, to be a constitutional amendment, uh, what would it mean for the 11,542 people who don't have anywhere to call home today? morning, Michael. It would certainly help uh, the situation. It wouldn't solve it. So it would mean that when the the doll is discussing legislation, any measures around housing, it would certainly widen the scope of what the, the doll and the Oireachtas could do uh, from from the current situation. So to give an example, there was uh, an independent analysis just looked looked at legislation that was proposed in the doll over the last number of years and it showed that on at least 12 different occasions uh, legislation on different aspects to, connected with housing uh, was was discontinued or couldn't progress because it was potentially in conflict with the constitution. So, look, you know, in and of itself, is it enough to address mm. the housing crisis? Ab- absolutely not. But doesn't mean that there would be a wider scope as to what could be done to to address it. Yes, it does. So, I suppose to give a, a practical example, uh, Ireland in a lot of a lot of issues to do with housing Ireland is an outlier. Uh, for example, people who are renting in Ireland are in, a, in an outlier situation compared to most other European countries. Most European countries, if you pay your rent, you don't break your rental agreement, you don't engage in antisocial behaviour. You, know, you know, any of those kind of problem-sorted behaviours uh, for landlord or, or neighbours. Then you are, it is, it is assumed and legally you, that is your, your home and you're able to uh, stay renting in it. Uh, and that's guaranteed. That's not the situation in, in Ireland, and certainly one of the reasons any time there's any look at uh, improving the rights of renters, the Constitution comes back as a potential barrier uh, to doing that. Uh, a lot of the measures that are brought in as emergency measures, which are just standard permanent measures in, in other European countries, the rationale for them being emergency only here is the the feeling in government circles anyway, so that is as far as you could go within what the constitution uh, allows you so okay so would you wouldn't helpful, have a, you wouldn't have a constitutional right to housing uh, in other words uh, as a result of a referendum and of course uh, the wording has yet to be uh, agreed uh, so we are talking in that type of vacuum but you couldn't expect that uh, to uh, occur as a result of a, a referendum but perhaps there would be a constitutional protection uh, that would prevent you from becoming homeless well, what it would mean is that your your right to access housing, your right to shelter would be recognised in the Constitution, just like your right to private property is recognised in the Constitution. But just because we all have a right to private property recognised in the Constitution doesn't mean that the state must give us private property as a result. So it means when laws are being framed, when policies are being made, our right to access shelter is part of the consideration under the Constitution, and that is balanced with other other rights as well. Uh, so it's not an absolute right. It doesn't mean you get handed the, the keys to a house automatically or anything like that. But it does give, it does recognise that the right to shelter, the right for some, you know, roof over your head, somewhere secure to live is very, very important. And that must be given full consideration when uh, laws or policies are, are drawn up. Mm. So it does tip the, the balance towards, uh, you know, more favourably towards people who are uh, homeless or at risk of homelessness, absolutely. But is it, you know, is it a kind of, will it be, will it solve all those problems? No, it won't. It will help move us in the right direction. Okay. Uh, and when it comes to housing, uh, there's 
a lot that has been said uh, and a lot that has been done in fairness to the government but the problem uh, continues uh, to get worse. Uh, what do you think of uh, this meeting uh, that is being held in, in government buildings today? Do you see that as a, a positive development? Yeah, I mean, in, in one sense, it is a bit surprising that look, the government's you know more than halfway through, and, and now they're deciding to bring in all these different stakeholders. And I think it is an admission from the government that they feel that to date, they you know they recognise that to date, the what they've done hasn't been working. I think a lot of this uh, comes down to really just uh, delivery. Uh, it's fine to have the, the targets in the budget uh, to, to deliver more homes, but this delivery is where the government have been falling down. And, and we've seen this last year in terms of look, targets not being met, but also in terms of hundreds of millions of euro that was mm. allocated uh, to deliver housing left unspent towards the end of the year. Five hundred million, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, mm. well, there's yeah. I mean, well, there's there's yeah. Well, there's different ways of of, of measuring. It, but there was three hundred seventy-three million allocated for local authority social homes, allocated elsewhere, uh, and then there's also uh, money left over in the housing. Uh, budget carried into 2023, which is really scandalous given the, the situation we're in. But mm. look, delivery, there's, there's three main challenges with delivery, and these are what needs to be focused on. So there's the financing, uh, there's the access to land, and then there's skills as well. And, and land, for example, a lot of smaller uh, builders who are kind of cut out of uh, building now, they can't get their hands on uh, development land, they're squeezed out by larger uh, developers, they can't compete in terms of uh, the prices that are paid, or even on the you know financing, it's hard to get. For example, a loan to buy land to to build on in the future. Banks tend not to lend for for that. And other countries have have really you know cracked this. And what they do is uh, either the state or a local authority you know buys up land in advance and then allocates that some for social housing, some for affordable purchase, some for smaller builders, some for private housing, some for housing for older people. So allocate some land then for amenities, schools, playgrounds, all that sort of stuff. And they do that in, adv- in advance. And then that means there's a constant regular supply of land. And for example, if we got much, you know, if we could get small builders back into building five or 10 or 15 houses a year, as, as they used to, to get that happening all across the country, that'd be an additional stream of mm. delivery. And, and they also, smaller builders, they, they, there's never any concern in any countries that any of them hold back supply to have prices rising. They build out 10, 15, 20, whatever they can in a year and sell them and then they use that to finance the next 10, 15 or, or 20. So in terms of you know competition, getting prices uh, stabilised or down, getting additional supply, that's, a, that's an important part of the equation. And they really have been squeezed out in the last number of years because they can't access finance and land. So that, that, for example, is part of the solution on it. Approved housing bodies were you know, not-for-profits uh, they they as well have, have difficulty in terms of accessing land. So if you got better, and they don't have the same kind of difficulties in terms of accessing finance because they're considered a very low uh, risk uh, organisation to lend to. So they can actually avail of lower interest rates than, for example, private for profit uh, builders. And there's a lot of uh, finance available for them through the housing finance agency. But land at the moment they're they're cut out of. Uh, so if, if these kind of constraints were tackled, and we get more people building and more different types of uh, building, including more of the not-for-profit sector, that would really drive affordability and drive additional supply. So I think that's really what needs to be uh, focused on. I would just be a little bit concerned 
and absolutely the, the government needs to talk to the construction industry and they need to talk to developers as well as everyone else. I'd be a little bit concerned that the, uh, it may, they may be weighted uh, too much towards listening to those uh, voices and not having enough of a broad uh, broad section in terms of who they're consulting on this. All right, uh, and that that uh, could uh, mean that uh, the developers, uh, because they have uh, the ear of uh, government, uh, would be given incentives, uh, I take it, uh, as a result of uh, those meetings. Uh, but delivery, as you say, of new housing uh, would address the supply problem to some degree. And if supply was to meet demand, you wouldn't have any of these problems or the need for a referendum for that matter. Yeah, well, it would certainly, uh, look, uh, the referendum would, would help because, you know, we'll always, for example, we'll always have people renting and we'll always, you know, why shouldn't people who rent here have the same sorts of rights as, as you would have in other European countries and a bit of security in terms of where they're, they're paying rent, a bit of security, that's their home. So referendum, for example, would, would help them even if we sorted out a whole re- range of myriad issues around supply. But uh, yeah, absolutely, if we could get... But it, more supply, but but also more supply of homes that are affordable within range that people can can buy. You know, on on average incomes, uh, middle incomes, lower lower incomes, uh, and then obviously for people who can't can't afford that to have enough supply of social uh, housing. If we could do that, then we'd be able to turn uh, a lot of this uh, around. It, it is the, the government are quite late in the day in terms of uh, doing this. Uh, you know, they are running out of time in terms of their own uh, their own. You know, their own uh, term of office mm. and it is surprising this is the kind of thing you'd expect that they would have done when they came into uh, office it seems to be an initiative of the, the new Taoiseach Leo Varkar but uh, like, I don't think he should have been waiting until he became Taoiseach uh, to drive an initiative like this this should have been done uh, you know uh, after the last election almost three years ago uh, when the new government was taking office. Okay, well, I, I think when the doll resumes, uh, we're going to hear a lot of uh, talk about housing because uh, that figure uh, doesn't sound like a lot when you say it quickly, but it really is an incredible amount of people. 11,542 people uh, who are homeless in this country. You'd have to build a, build a town the size of Enniscorthy uh, in, or, in order to house all of those people. Yeah, and, and this is I mean, this is really a direct result of undersupply of social housing now mm. for well over 10 years. We, we really didn't have, uh, up until uh, the, the crash in the few years after it, we didn't have this sort of level of homelessness at all. Uh, and you didn't really have a situation where people who, like, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the 11,500 people there are in uh, jobs are working away, were always paying their rent, never had an issue and never thought they'd be at risk of homelessness and have found themselves in that situation because they literally just couldn't find somewhere new to live even though they were able to pay uh, reasonable rents and everything else. So it is a, you know, a large part of that number of people is a relatively new phenomenon because there hasn't been that safety net from a supply of social housing for people on, on lower incomes who aren't able to uh, maybe uh, you know meet uh, higher rents that are asked for in the private rent sector. So mm. it ca- it can be turned around. It, we can get rid of this. You know we can el- eliminate that level of homelessness. No question around it. But it does mean building enough social homes year in, uh, year out. And that whole uh, ideology that was in place about ten, twelve years ago, of saying oh we don't need social housing anymore. The private sector can look after everyone's housing needs. It just has it, that has been disastrous and hasn't worked in any. Uh, country in the world. It just doesn't work. You have to have uh, a safety net. You have to have different options 
for people with different uh, okay. incomes. That's the only thing that works. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, but thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. Much appreciate your time. Keno Callaghan, Social Democrats spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, every aspect of Irish healthcare delivery is under pressure. Uh, Today we're going to hear a a suggestion, indeed a campaign to take pressure off GPs from pharmacists. Sheena Mitchell is a pharmacy owner and creator of the Wonder Baba Healthcare Resource and the Wonder Baba podcast series. And on the line with us, and a very good morning to you, Sheena, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've written to the Minister for health and uh, you've started uh, an online petition I think. That's right Michael yeah thanks a million for having me on so I wrote on the 16th of December to our teacher Cleo Fradker who has told me that it's since been passed on to Stephen Donnelly but I have had no kind of response further to that so I wrote about two options that would potentially alleviate up to 15% of GP appointments um, from, you know, I suppose the minor ailment side of things. So mm. there's two aspects. One kind of prevents the medical card holder having to go in and get a medical card prescription from the GP for something that private patient can buy over the counter in a pharmacy because I amount this difference to price discrimination really on the treatment and access of healthcare for medical card holders. So I suppose that's one kind of side of it. The other then would be the introduction of what's known in the UK and what works very well there are patient group directives. So this would mean that for very, very minor ailments like something like bacterial conjunctivitis um, or a very minor urinary tract infection, a pharmacist would have a document which has to be designed by a multidisciplinary team, including a senior doctor, that would describe a scenario whereby a pharmacist can supply medication to a patient that would normally be on prescription under this protocol. So okay. it's very safe because the patient would have to tick a lot of boxes to, to get the supply you know. Mm. Uh, as you say, you're not making this up. You're going on a, a model in the UK. Indeed, you worked in Scotland for some time under this model. Yeah, and I think maybe that's why I'm so, fr- so frustrated at the moment, because our GPs are really, really busy and they play a hugely important role in our healthcare society. So the goal of this isn't to take, I suppose, workload away from them, you know, so that <laughs> they're sitting at home. It's so that they can service the customers or patients that they currently aren't able to. We have a growing and ageing population and, you know, unfortunately that brings more chronic condition and disease management into effect. And we want the GPs to be able to see, A, the patients who really need them for an acute condition now, and B, to be able to help people manage their ongoing health concerns more effectively in the UK as a newly qualified pharmacist and this is the bit that I think shocks me to the core Um, 16 years ago I was working and you know taking part in patient group directives and with the same training and 16 plus years of experience of working in Irish community pharmacy we still can't do that here so I just don't see why if I went to the UK I'm trusted as a you know as a clinical healthcare professional yet here in Ireland I'm restricted and we're sending everyone into the GP system and unfortunately they cannot meet demand only one in five GPs are able to take on new medical card patients and only one in four can take on private patients Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And we know there's an infrastructure uh, problem as well, where we have only 15% of the country's GPs are based in rural areas. Um, whereas we do know that 85% of the population live within five kilometres of community pharmacy. So for me, this is a no-brainer way to increase access to healthcare for the patient. And by doing that, we're removing some of the workload on secondary care. So that's care that's happening in our emergency departments and hospitals. Okay, well, there's a a lot of reasons for taking pressure off uh, the GPs. As uh, Unfortunately, we all know at this stage the amount of people who tell you uh, that uh, they won't take on new patients, uh, whether they are medical card holders or or private patients. But even those uh, who have been attending a practice for years on end are finding it difficult to get an appointment with their GP. Now, having said that, GPs are GPs. They're not pharmacists. They're highly qualified people, uh, as are pharmacists, but in a, a different way. On the other hand, though, I mean, you're talking about some fairly straightforward diagnosis, let alone treatments, uh, because, I mean, if I have conjunctivitis, I, I know I need antibiotics uh, and I'll go to the doctor and pay the 50 euro and tell him I need antibiotics and undoubtedly he'll give me antibiotics or the same with shingles uh, when you need antiviral medicines or, or, or things like that. Uh, and pharmacists are very qualified people to deal with these minor ailments. Yeah, and I think the the real highlight of this is that we're actually already doing that job in the community, except what's happening now is a patient comes in, say a mother with a four or five-year-old child, they come in and we're able to diagnose, even though <laughs> diagnose is the wrong word, we're able to identify that, you know, the child has bacterial conjunctivitis and nothing that we give them over the counter is going to solve the problem. Now, the patient wants something. So you're in then the unethical situation 
situation where you're like, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to sell you something that's not going to work because what you need is an antibiotic. And the only way to access that is to go into the GP system. But the parent is then saying, well, I rang the GPs and it's five to seven days before I can get an appointment. And that's not fair on the child, you know. So I think it has to come down to common sense. And then the other point about the -the over-the-counter stuff, what happens now is someone comes in, say, for something, for the treatment of something simple like worms in a child or irritable bowel syndrome or eczema and as a private patient they're coming in you're giving your recommendation and the private patient is buying it getting their treatment and off they go but for a medical card patient who doesn't have money to spend you know on over-the-counter remedies when they're literally trying to spend their money on electricity food and heat like it's it's unfair that over-the-counter remedies for symptomatic relief are then almost deemed something that is a choice or a wellness product. They're not. They're treatment for relief of symptoms that, you know, just because someone has money, they can afford it. Well, I believe as a healthcare system, we should be able to provide it to people, whether they have money or not. So in the UK, again, pharmacists have a prescription claim pad and they can literally fill out a prescription which can be used as an NHS claim form and the the patient receives it on the medical card. And I, I just think, again, that makes sense because all those medical card patients who are seeking over-the-counter remedies have to go to the GP to get the prescription, to bring it back to the pharmacy so we can give them something that we just sold to the previous patient private, okay. privately well, without any GP intervention. People do want to support your petition. It's on wonderbaba.ie and across social media then as well. Thank you so much. Thank you indeed. Sheena Mitchell, pharmacy owner and creator of the Wonder Baba Healthcare Resource and the Wonder Baba Podcast Series. Now, uh, let's uh, say good morning to Brenda McKay. Good morning, Brenda, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You're very concerned about your dad, obviously. I am, yes. Uh, Thank you, Michael, for taking me on the show this morning. Yeah, I'm very concerned about my father, Kieran Stewart. He um, he disappeared or left the house on us on Sunday at around... uh, 1 p.m. between 1 p.m. to 1:30 p.m. and nobody has heard from him since, which is completely out of character for him. It's not something that he's ever done before. Um, he has left the house with no phone and um, no bank card, so he doesn't have much on him in regards to cash. So we're just concerned for him, for his safety, and thought that maybe if he was listening to the show, that he would know that we're just all very concerned for him. We are looking for him home. Um, he's driving a Blackboard Fiesta. Registration is 07LH5014. Um, and we just want him to come home. Um, you know, if he's if he's somewhere and he can hear this, um, if he can make contact with us, phone us, uh, we can come get him. You know, whatever the situation is, we don't we don't care. We just want him home. His his two granddaughters miss him. Mm. Yeah, it's a mystery, is it? Uh, and uh, I take it uh, nothing like this has happened before. No, nothing. It's completely out of character. Yeah. Um, not something he's ever done before. So it's very worrying. Okay. Uh, he left uh, at one o'clock on Sunday, driving on a, Sunday. a black yeah. Fiesta. Uh, 07. A black Fiesta, yeah. 07LH5014. How, how would you describe him uh, if uh, people may see uh, your dad? How would I describe him? Um, he was a lovely man. Um, I'd say he's bald. Would you say he's bald? He wouldn't have mm. a whole lot of hair. Yeah. <laughs> He'd mm. be a bit grey. 
Um, height wise, uh, five foot, five foot two. Um, he was wearing black trousers and a black jacket. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, well, uh, if Kieran is listening, to make contact directly with you or indirectly with you to let you know that he, he's safe Any of and well. Myself, my mum, my sister, his work have even are very concerned about him. Um, his boss, John, uh, uh, no, everybody, anybody can make contact with anybody. It doesn't matter who, as long as he makes some contact. Yeah. Okay. So we know he's safe and he's fine and we just want to know that he's okay or just come home. Yeah, okay. Well, of course you do. Uh, and uh, there's a photograph of Kieran uh, on the LMFM pages. Uh, yeah, and on my yeah. on my own Facebook page as well um, under my name, Brenda McKay, and my sister, uh, who is Kira Stewart, is on her Facebook page as well. Okay. Um, and there's a photo of him and um, and maybe everybody, everybody can share that uh, as well, hoping that somebody yeah. will see him. Uh, We're hoping everybody yeah. will share it and maybe somebody might have seen him somewhere mm. or seen his car that if we knew an area that he's, the area that he's even in, that we could even come to him if he didn't want to come mm. to us. Or if you anything, see the car, even if you just see the car, Black Fiesta 07 LH5014, uh, you're desperate yeah. for information, uh, and understandably so. I'm sure the whole family is up the wall. Uh, and hopefully somebody will uh, be able to report seeing Kieran or the car, or that your dad will make contact with you himself after the appeal today. Exactly. Okay. Yes, yes, that's all we want, to some contact. Okay, well, I hope you have good news very soon, Brenda. Thank you indeed. All right, thank you so much, Michael. Thank have you a indeed. Good day, thank you. That's uh, Brenda McKay there, who's uh, missing her dad, Kieran Stewart, if you do have any information about his whereabouts. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. There was a, a very interesting uh, survey on uh, the cost of housing uh, that has been released by the Real Estate Alliance. And if you look at County Loud, uh, for example, the cost now of a three-bedroom semi-detached home in uh, the county is 260000 on average. That's up 6% on December 2021. In County Mead, the average price is 296,250 euro uh, and that's up 5% on a year previous. Let's speak now with local REA uh, State uh, Alliance um, uh, representative uh, Gabriel O'Brien of O'Brien Collins uh, REA O'Brien Collins in Drogheda. Very good morning to you Gabriel. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning uh, and indeed to take a look at these prices because uh, there are significant increases over the course of the year. Five and six percent increases like that in the two counties uh, but the prices went stagnant towards the end of the year didn't they? They did indeed and a good morning to you Michael and to your listeners. We noticed that um, the vast majority of those price increases that you just mentioned happened in quarters one and two in particular and we could relate that to let's say you know there was a, another surge of sort in of sorts in covid rather and that was the price surges in the first um, half of 2022 that was largely on foot of pent up demand that then when the markets opened up we saw lots of buyers coming into the marketplace at one time so we saw price surges in the first half of the year and then certainly quarter 3 quarter 4 prices leveled off um, inquiry levels were down, viewing levels were down. I think that was also in part related to perhaps the new lending rules coming in 
would affect mm-hmm. from the 1st of January this year. Okay, uh, and the impact that they're having on people's decision to buy or not to buy. Exactly, and I think the people who were maybe thinking in the, the latter half of last year and depending on their own financial circumstances were holding off because now a first-time buyer can, provi- can borrow four times their salary as opposed to three and a half times previously and a non-first-time buyer, so somebody who has owned a property before, can actually... Um, pay a, a deposit of mm. 10% um, and borrow 90% and previously it was they had to come up with 20% themselves. Okay. So that opens up and mm. facilitates the market for them hopefully a little bit um, easier but there's still certain challenges with you know prices. Mm. prices so so that, that, that may have paused demand temporarily and that demand may take up again now going into the new year. Yeah, I think that, mm. that demand may take up again in mm. the new homes sector in particular. And what we are finding is, you know, there, there's um, special mortgage deals out there for, um, they're called the green, green mortgages. So mm. if you have a, a house or a property that is a, has got a B2 energy rating or higher, you get a, a a sweeter deal, let's say, from the from the financial institutions, and that's down to they're, they're buying a, a more energy efficient home. Their bills, hopefully, are a little bit lighter, and and it's it's attractive. But uh, the secondhand homes, what we're finding is there's a little bit of a, lev- a leveling off there. That's that's no bad thing. And maybe one of our predictions for 2023 is that the price gap between for, between brand new homes and second-hand homes may widen mm. because people, first-time buyers in particular, um, who are making up the, the vast majority of the buying market out there at the moment, they, will, they, they have a distinct preference to buy a new home tied up in, a let's say, a 25 to 35-year mortgage, good energy rating, and at least they know they, they know that they've got an energy efficient house that can work at the touch of a button. OK, what about the European Central Bank and all of this? Because uh, the increase in uh, the mortgage interest <coughs> rates must make people stop uh, and pause. Uh, it has become a lot more expensive to buy a house, e- even if the price is exactly the same. The monthly repayments have gone up for people. The monthly repayments have gone up. And I'll tell you, Michael, one of our challenges at the moment are uh, people who have agreed to buy houses, let's say, last September, October, and now they've got mortgages expiring and they're under distinct pressure to to get to to buy before those interest rates go up that's probably particularly in the new homes market where houses aren't you know mm. uh, 100% complete so that that's putting a lot of pressure on those particular buyers and more generally what we see it's a little bit too early to call it um, as of now you know in in at, at this stage in 2023 we will see it, however. Um, I think it will lead into a maybe a softening in demand for the time being, ju- un- until such time as we see how mm. that works out. Now, I would, if if you can allow me, just to give one example to your mm-hmm. listeners. Mm. We sold a, a, four, a new four bed semi detached house in the north side of Drogheda recently, and I was talking to the, the you know the successful buyers and they're they're very happy in their brand new home and it's working very well and just during the course of the conversation they were telling me that they were very happy and that they had fixed their interest rate and I think the repayment was coming in around fifteen hundred euro per month and that suited them and their needs now where you have that same house side by side available to rent on the open market it would probably rent out at two thousand three hundred per month. So for people who can afford to buy, it still makes sense, provided provided they've 
they're stress tested and all of that mm. because mm. it's where you can come up with the mortgage and where you can come up with the deposit, the the mortgage repayment in that instance was significantly less than the market rent for mm. it. And a significant yield as well, if you were to rent it out to somebody else. Um, that There is a significant mm. yield, but Michael, mm. I will say to you, we're finding no real example of inve- of, of investors coming okay. into the marketplace. Mm. Um, to the contrary, our reports during 2022 showed that uh, landlords were exiting the market. I know there's very high rents out there, mm. but um, when, when uh, previous landlords found that they'd got equity back into their property and and maybe could afford to sell, they're actually selling. And in that example, in a new home scheme that that we're involved in, one of them in particular, uh, quite a large one, honestly, close, I would say, to 98, 99% of first-time buyers, the investors aren't coming back. Okay, there's obviously a lot of aspirational first-time buyers then as well. I mean, that must be a dream to think of going from 2,000 or 2,300 a month in rent down to a mortgage of 1,500. No, totally, totally. And, mm. it, and it makes absolute sense um, for, for for people in that position. And the other thing I would say to you and your listeners is, you know, I mean, rents are high and I, I take that and that's that's not a good thing, you know, going forward for the, for the good of... Of, of of the rental market from a tenant's point of view. Um, but but there are some tenants out there who are renting properties on the old rental scheme mm. where their where their their rents are maybe not the full market rent. So they're making they're getting they're also getting the opportunity to get into the into the first time buyer market having perhaps had an easier uh, way to save a deposit. Mm. What about the cost of, uh, of living? <laughs> the cost of everything is only going in one direction and uh, I suppose the result of that is that uh, we've all taken a 10% pay cut if you like. Sure. Uh, and uh, it's possible that wages haven't followed the rate of inflation. Uh, is that having a, an impact on people deciding to buy or not? I think that is having um, an impact. I mean undoubtedly the, the cost of living um uh, cost of living inflation, energy cost inflation, and there's no way that wages have have kept up in this country um, in 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 any measure. But what we've so I think that's part of the reason why we've seen a softening towards the end of last year. Ukraine war, cost of living inflation. There's a lot more talk about that out, yeah. out in amongst the general public in the media. So people, we found people were pulling their horns in and saying, "Okay, maybe let's take a breather and let's wait." Yeah. So I think it's going to be very interesting. Maybe at the end of quarter one, the end of March, just to see how. 2023 has kickstarted from a property point mm-hmm. of view. Because you need confidence in the market if it's to be buoyant. Uncertainty is a bad thing, isn't it? Un- yeah. Uncertainty, mm-hmm. uncertainty mm-hmm. is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Ireland, from when compared against against some of the other countries in Europe, have um, you know a younger population. There's a lot of people working. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we must be at full employment if 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 not exceptionally close to that. So there's there's people are earning and people can still hope people's aspiration is still to own their own property mm-hmm. and they will. But well, especially if it's cheaper to do it, then it's costing people to rent, and that's it, one of the big dilemmas. How do you save when you're renting? Yeah, and mm-hmm. that that really mm-hmm. is, that really is a big dilemma, and mm-hmm. we can see um, we can pe- see people struggling with that, and you know. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's a big it's a big big challenge, and the demand has to be uh, there because there just isn't enough houses. The supply doesn't meet the demand in this country, uh, and it's a far way off doing that. Uh, has, has it improved though? Is that feeding into the reasons for prices coming down? 
I think so. Well, well, I, I think from a, from a new homes market point of view, and I just just take mm. Drogheda Town, where we're based, as an example, there is a swathe of land on the north side of Drogheda, um, the northern environs, and there's two or three new large home estates coming on stream there over the next 12 months. And that's been facilitated by the first section of the northern cross route being put in place. So it's going to open up a lot of lands. Now, I think that's, that's I think that, that's a good thing because mm. it's going to, you know, it's going to bring people to Drogheda who mm. maybe haven't been here heretofore, and lots of lots of other maybe small businesses can can uh, spring up because of that because there's more people, more people in town, and also people more people working from home, so they're more connected into a town. They're not the five day the commuter. Maybe mm. they're only going mm. into Dublin two days. So I I think that there are more new home supply um, mm-hmm. coming on, Michael. Um, and we're just going to have to see. I should correct myself because I, I think I said that the uh, price of housing is coming down, which is not correct. It's just not increasing at the same rate. Yes. Uh, there's been increases. Uh, will the price of housing come down? I don't know necessarily that the price... Well, I, I'll answer that in two, mm. in, in two sections. The first, from a new homes market point of view, you know, building supplies are expensive. There's a lot of development contributions. There's a lot of professional fees. I don't see the new homes prices coming down mm. and they will probably increase but at much much smaller rates than over the last 18 months mm-hmm. second hand homes I don't see them increasing my own professional view by the same rate as new homes Okay, I think that's an important part of this because I wonder if people have been holding off selling second hand yeah. homes yeah. hoping that the prices would increase sure and I would answer it in this way second-hand homes that maybe have a C, D or E energy rating. You know, the older that they get every year, the more work that needs to be done to bring them into, let's say, a B, B energy rating territory. So, and, and the costs of doing that aren't going down. So that ties into what I was saying earlier, Michael, that I just, mm. I do see the price gap between, let's say, a, three, a new three-bed semi versus its equivalent of maybe 20, 30-year-old house. I do see that that price gap perhaps widening for the very reasons I've just given. Okay. Uh, To conclude then, uh, would you say it's as good a time as any to buy if you can afford and fix your mortgage and as good a time as any to sell because uh, the increases are, are not going to be at the rates that we've seen recently. Well, look, I, I think it's, um, I think it's you know, the market, let's say you, you own a property and you, you have to buy in the same market. Mm. So, and that's always the way. So if you can, if, it, if you can afford to do it and it makes sense from your lifestyle point of view, maybe you're right sizing or mm. downsizing, um, then it is the same market. Mm. And that is, it isn't, it isn't a bad time. And when it comes to the new homes market out there and first time buyers, if you has, have stressed your test, stress test yourself individually, mm-hmm. um, look, it is cheaper to to repay a mortgage than to rent that property, provided provided you're you're fortunate enough that you're that you're able to comply. Okay, uh, and you're talking about a four percent increase in Drogheda in County Louth over the next year. That's what we're to- that's what we're predicting. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe come back to me qu- <laughs> quarter one, and it could be it could be either side mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. I think our price increase predictions for 2023, Michael, are at the more um, nominal end. Okay, all right, good to talk to you. Thank you for coming into us and. Th- uh, for giving us an insight as uh, to what to expect in the year ahead. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you indeed. Gabriel O'Brien of REA O'Brien Collins in Drogheda. Michael Reed on on LMFM. Well, let's talk about hospital overcrowding once again and uh, there could be some overcrowding 
for some time to come. Uh, it's a situation that could prevail over the course of uh, the next two to three months. A protest is to take place in several locations across the country on the 21st of January. And let's speak uh, to the leader and founder of uh, the AIM2 party, Peter Tobin, who's a TD for Mead West and chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital campaign. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on at the programme this morning. I must say, uh, I'm not sure... Uh, if uh, you thought the same uh, but I thought after the big push that went on over the weekend uh, that the trolley numbers would have been lower than the almost 500 that were on trolleys yesterday uh, and today uh, I, I think people would be bracing themselves uh, in terms of seeing what figures come through. Yeah I think you're right and what happens is the trolley numbers often increase uh, over the weekend period um, and what happens there is that uh, patients can't be discharged into other elements of the health service or to home help or to nursing homes because the administrations in those elements are not operating and as a result they can't discharge but numbers are coming in so uh, you know the figures are incredibly high and, and are, are going to go up over the weekend for sure. I think one of the, the, the interesting uh, pieces of information that has come to me very recently especially in relation to Navin and Drogheda is that patients are, uh, who are living in Meath now are being brought to Drogheda A&E by ambulance. Uh, they're being triaged there, and then they're being brought back to Navin A&E by ambulance, if an ambulance is available. Uh, or if an ambulance is not available, they're being brought back to Navin A&E by taxi. And in the case where they're being brought back by taxi, a medical staff member is going with them, and then that medical staff member has to get a taxi back to Drogheda. Mm. Now... If you were to, to try to design the most complex, uh, broken, confused, waste of time, efficient, inefficient system, that's probably how you would go uh, about doing it. It's an incredible thing uh, that because of this new uh, ambulance bypass of Navin, mm. that we have patients making a journey to Drada and back to Navin for, um, for, 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 for uh, treatment. And we have staff members who could be, you know, moving in... F- four different journeys around the one patient. But but why is that happening? I thought this bypass protocol, the ambulance bypass protocol, would be similar to what they've done in Ennis, uh, where they've U-turned that decision that everybody goes to Limerick and now the paramedics can consult with doctors in the hospital and decide to take them to the MAU in Ennis. First of all, I suppose the danger with the, the bypass that's happening at the moment is that the risk assessment is being left to the paramedic to make the decision on where the patient should go. And that, like one of the problems in how the HSE has been dealing with this whole crisis over the last number of years in Meath is that nobody wants to accept risk. So, you know, one of the reasons why they had a, a GP referred MAU in their plan was because they wanted the GP to make a risk assessment or take the risk in relation to where the patient should go and now the risk lies with a paramedic in an ambulance and where the patient should go and you know the human instinct is that you reduce the risk to yourself in your decision making process so in many cases I imagine what's happening is patients who don't need to go to draw that even under the current bypass are being brought to Drada because of uh, an unwillingness to accept risk. And then Drada realises, listen, this patient is, is fine to be treated in Navin and should go back to Navin. And that's why you have the extra elements there. But a, a key point of what you said there is, is interesting. Um, and I think that the way that Ennis has been treated, that Ennis is now reopening to ambulances, is possibly 
a change in direction of the HSE. It's possibly a turn for the first time uh, against the direction of travel in which the HSE have been going over the last number of years. And we've seen senior consultants for the first time admit that the decision to close Ennis was wrong. Mm. Um, And that is a major change in the HSE's um, direction because what it means is that one of the significant reasons for the overcrowding in um, the war zone that is called University Hospital Limerick is because A&E's were were closed uh, surrounding it. And we are in that scenario at the moment where the HSE are looking to close the A&E in Navin which will lead, no doubt, to a similar effect at Andrade into the future. Um, and that's why we have to resist the, uh, the closure of the A&E and Avon with everything we have. And, and this is a lesson, I think, for the people of Mead and for the elected representatives, you know, to show how important that hospital campaign in saving Navin A&E has been. Because if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have the capacity in Navin, which is overstretched at the mm. moment. There's about, um, there's about uh, eight people on trolleys in Navin A&E at the moment, and all of those people would be in Drogheda okay. uh, or Mullingar only for the campaign yeah. uh, to save us. I was just going to mention Mullingar. Um, uh, and you'll be protesting on the 21st of January. I think a, a protest will take place in Ennis on the 21st of January and, and other locations. Uh, but we heard the clinical uh, director of uh, the hospital in Mullingar uh, say last week uh, that they were getting patients from every corner of Meath. Uh, and just as we're talking, um, I'm looking at Dunboyne because I'm sure that's one of the locations uh, that he made uh, reference to uh, on Google Maps. And to get from Dunboyne to Mullingar by public transport would take two hours, 15 minutes, and I think it would take three different buses. Yeah, look, it is, again, mind-bending to think that we have patients uh, in Dunboyne um, travelling uh, all the direction uh, to Mullingar uh, for treatment. And it is incredible, you know, that we have a, the HSE put in place this bypass protocol, which is now leading to so many patients from Mead uh, being brought to Mullingar Hospital. That's not good for those patients, and it's not good for Mullingar Hospital, because all of these A&Es are experiencing a domino effect. If you close access in one place, it increases uh, pressures uh, on the surrounding hospitals. You know, when Monaghan closed, Mm. Cavan came under serious pressure. When Dundalk closed, uh, Drogheda came under serious pressure. Um, You know, we've seen Yeah, but they're half an hour apart. We're talking about four or five hour round trip here, it would seem, if you're using public transport. In in public transport, absolutely. Mm. It's it's, it's completely bananas. And, you know, that's why the the day of protest on the 21st of January uh, is so important. So what we're looking to do is, is, for the first time ever, is to have... Uh, protests happening simultaneously outside of A&E's right through the island of Ireland. And last night I chaired a meeting of hospital campaigns across the country. We had people from Daisy Hill Hospital campaign from Causeway Coast up in in Antrim uh, right down to Ennis and the Midwest hospitals, uh, Mullingar Hospital, Cavan Hospital, Drada, um, campaigns associated with those hospitals um, over the last number of years sitting in a meeting discussing about how to uh, try to mobilise as many people as we can on the 21st uh, of January. And we're asking the people of Meath and the people of Louds to locate themselves at 1pm outside of Our Lady's Hospital in Avenue, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda at that time. Uh, because I do think that we have 
an opportunity to change the direction of government policy now. But we need to load as much political pressure as we can on the government. And what to make what, sure what that are happens. you trying to achieve? Just spell that out. Is it to open up, uh, to keep the ED open in Navan, but to open up the other smaller hospitals? Yeah, but like the, 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 the hospital campaign nationally now wants a review over the government policy, which was you know, uh, developed in the small hospital framework document. That's the closure of the A&E's. Uh, was the way to proceed. We want a complete review over that. We want to see smaller hospitals being brought back into play to take the pressure that exists within the uh, ED system across the country. So, um, you know, we're not going to make a, a, a clinical decision over particular A&Es from this distance, but we want, first of all, the process of closing A&Es and reducing services to stop. And we do want the HSE to review their decisions over the likes of Ennis uh, in the future and possibly open those to um, to make sure that the uh, A&E returns there. Now, many people say, well, once you close an A&E, you can never come back. Well, that's simply not true because I've studied this. In Monaghan, Monaghan ED was closed uh, for a period of time and actually it came back online uh, as an A&E for a period of five years after that. It is possible for the HSE to reverse these decisions. And given the massive increase in population, given the significant aging of the population over the period of time when these plans were first hatched, we believe it's time for them to completely review their policy direction and in some cases reopen uh, accidents and emergencies across the country. All right. Uh, is that the solution or is it providing more alternative care because we've been hearing there's a, a thousand beds available in nursing homes uh, that are not being used and there's probably eight or 900 people in hospitals who shouldn't be in hospitals and could be cared for in nursing homes to some degree but elsewhere as well. Yeah, so like, uh, all of these tools, all of these levers are ways of fixing the issue. So again, we've made the point in primary care. Uh, primary care is broken at the moment. And there are 30% too few GPs in the system currently. So that means many people can't get onto GP lists. They have to go to A&E if they're in trouble. And even if you're on a GP list, you may not get a, a, a GP appointment for two or three weeks which means people are going to ED and accident emergency uh, if they're in trouble as well. And if you look at the dock on call services throughout the country, that's broken at the moment. In the Midlands, my dock was uh, at the, at teetering at the edge of complete closure on Christmas Eve. Um, and the reason why Limerick actually went into this, the, the, the um, spiral that it went into uh, over the last number of weeks is because Shannon Dock became completely inundated as well. So uh, absolutely, logically, we need to make sure that we have enough doctors uh, to make sure primary care is working. And on the flip side, we need to make sure that people have, have access into home care help, into nursing homes, and into other pathways of treatment. So I know, I know of occasions, incredibly, where there's been patients in hospital, clinically discharged, for up to two years so that has meant that the doctor has said, this patient does not need to be in this hospital. We can't treat this patient anymore. But that patient can't go anywhere because the pathway for that patient is not available to them. And the money that it costs to keep a patient in, in an A&E bed uh, or in, in an award bed uh, for long periods of time is colossal. It's a complete waste of money. Um, it, it doesn't serve anybody. And um, the patient... Uh, or the, um, the, the hospital service to do that. And we do need to make sure that those pathways are clear on the other end. But again, you know, I'm, I'm a TD in Mead and I, I work very hard to try and get home care packages for patients. And it's like, it's like pulling hen's teeth at the moment. Mm. One of the reasons being is because 
very few people are putting themselves forward for the job of home home carers. These are professional people who are doing a professional job minding and looking after the care of very elderly people often, but they're not getting paid a wage to consummate uh, with that particular role. So, you know, if we're not going to get the people to put themselves forward for those roles unless we get recruitment packages that are competitive to make people attracted to the job. Okay, we have to leave it there for the moment, but thanks for joining us as always. Peter Tobin is uh, the leader and founder of the Aim2 Party and a TD for Mead West, as well as being the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. We're joined for the report this week by Sergeant Patrick Smith of Kells Garda Station. Good morning, Sergeant. Thanks for joining us. And we start with an aggravated burglary which occurred in Johnstown in Navan. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, on the 4th of January at approximately 9pm, four suspects forcibly entered the front door of a private house at Bindview, Navan. It is believed two of the suspects were armed with instruments and all were wearing balaclavas and threatened the homeowner. They took a number of items to include car keys of a vehicle which was later stolen at around 2am. The vehicle was a black Mercedes. All these suspects left the scene on foot. The detectives at Navangard are staking or seeking the public's assistance. And if any information about the crime or no offence suspicious, please contact my colleagues at Navangard Station on 046 907 9930 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 111. Okay, and that was on Wednesday of last week. We go to Thursday and a number of burglaries that occurred in Riverstown and Talonstown. Yes, on the 5th of January, a burglary occurred at a private residence at Palestown RD between 5.45pm and 6pm, where the homeowner returned and noticed that the back door had been forced and the house was ransacked. A large amount of jewellery, unfortunately, was taken. Uh, between 4pm and 6pm, another house at Riverstown RD was also the subject of a burglary. Um, Guardi have carried out a number of inquiries and believe both incidents may be linked. They've downloaded CCTV footage from a local premises which depicts the offending vehicle as a small black hatchback with distinctive alloy wheels. Uh, further CCTV from local business also shows this vehicle leaving in the direction of RD, closely followed by another black vehicle which we believe is also involved. So if you're in the vicinity at these times or any information about these crimes, please contact RD Garda Station on 041 or the Garda Confidential Line again on 1-800-666-111. OK, we spoke to you before Christmas, Sergeant, uh, about uh, people impersonating members of Garda Shia Khan, and there's been more incidents of this. Yes, unfortunately, Michael, I was in studio there with you before Christmas just to highlight this issue. Um, again, on the 5th of January, um, a private residence on the Cairns Road, Bellystown, it was reported that a male claimed to be a member of Garda Shia Khan called to the address. The homeowner heard a knock at the back door and when she answered the door, a male was stood at the door holding a number of 50 euro notes and introduced himself as the Gardee, but he did not produce any form of identification. He claimed he found a 50 euro note and asked the homeowner to check her cash inside her home. Uh, the homeowner was aware of the scam and refused the entry into her home. She described the suspect as being in his late 40s, no more uh, than his early 50s. He was about 5 foot 10 in height, medium build, with a short, light coloured hair, and he had, a gray, some, had some grey in it. He was also wearing a very distinctive green puffy jacket and jeans. Um, following on for that, at approximately 10am, 
A similar incident again occurred at an address at Tower Road in Mornington. This time, the suspect called at the front door and produced what appeared to be a guard badge, claiming to be a member of Angarda Shikana, and again had a number of 50 euro notes in his hand and asked the homeowner to check cash inside the house. Unfortunately, this occasion, the homeowner invited the suspect into the house and he made his good as escape with a moderate amount of cash. So investigating detectives believe that both, both incidents are linked and have carried out a number of inquiries and have gathered CCTV footage. So we're again asking for anyone of any information about these crimes to contact the Ashburn Detective Unit on 01-801-0600 or the Garda Confidential Line again on one 800 one. We go to Drogheda next. And some fairly serious damage uh, that occurred on Sunday just gone by. Yes, on the 8th of January between 9.30pm and 11.15pm, five vehicles which were parked at Fairgreen Drada were damaged. Uh, significantly now, no effort was made to enter these vehicles. Uh, Vestengardi believe uh, they were specifically targeted as all vehicles belonged to employees from a particular local establishment. Uh, my colleagues are currently canvassing the area for CCTV footage. And again, we're looking for if you were in the vicinity of the, during these times or notice anything suspicious or have any information regarding this crime, please contact Draw the Guard Station on 041-987-4200 or the Guard Confidential Line again on 1-800-666-1. All right. I, I know uh, you want to reissue an appeal following a hit and run that uh, occurred in December. Yes. Um, Guardian Dunshock and Ranks just to highlight this again. It was a, they're investigating a hit and run incident which occurred on Thursday afternoon, December the eighth, on the L two two one four Clacloon to Minute Road. Uh, at approximately one twenty p.m., a male cyclist was knocked off his bicycle by a vehicle which failed to remain at the scene. The incident resulted in the cyclist suffering several serious injuries. Anyone who may, may have been on the L2214 Cocoon to Minute Road and witnessed the incident or anyone who may have dash cam footage of the area during this time are asked to contact Dunshockland Guard Station on 01-825-8600, Ashburn Guard Station on 01-801-0600 or the Guard Confidential Line on one 800 one My colleagues are in particular appealing to the person who actually aided the cyclist uh, to also please come forward to to assist with this investigation. Okay, and uh, before you leave us uh, this week, Sergeant, uh, there's a lot of concern for Mark Duffy, who hasn't been seen since October. Yes, we just want to renew our appeal there to the public there. My colleagues in Navan uh, are seeking the public's assistance in tracing the whereabouts of 43-year-old Mark Duffy, who was last seen in the Johnstown area of Navan on Monday, October the 3rd. Mark is described as being five foot eight in height, with broad build, with brown hair and blue eyes. And we're just looking at anyone with any information to please contact Navan Garda Station on 046-903-6100 or again the Garda Confidential Line on one 800 one Sergeant Patrick Smith of Kells Garda Station, thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme and we'll see you again tomorrow morning for our next programme, God willing, at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.